welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Shokananda and Reverend Pram, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. In today's episode, we'll be talking all about the mind. This is a central concept in classical yoga, philosophy and practice. So what's your relationship with your mind? Let's get started. So you said something that really struck me and I've been thinking about, you were talking about your relationship with your mind, you know, and kind of how it's evolved over the years, but you don't give your mind the kind of leeway to decide if you feel like meditating that day. And you said something, I even wrote it down. You said, quote, I'm not going to give the mind that much authority over me, end Mm -hmm. quote. Could you say more about that? I'm fascinated. Yeah. Well, there are areas where my mind has a lot of authority over me, but I can say meditation isn't one of them. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I moved into an ashram. I saw the schedule. Morning, noon, evening meditation. Why, why would I join an ashram if I didn't want to follow the schedule? Uh, and I think I was, the schedule appealed to me because I was, I, I was uh, what's the right word? I had a natural inclination in that direction to be, have a disciplined rhythm life. I might be, in the early days particularly, I might have been like vat imbalanced. You know, uh, for those who don't know, that's kind of airy untethered. So I like a structure. I'm pro- I probably was too structured in my early days. Uh, now I just enjoy the, the, uh, the borders that the structure creates for me about how to live a daily life in a spiritual way. So it's hard for me to help someone in that area because my mind uh, didn't, didn't rebel against the three daily meditations right from the beginning. It, wow. it rebelled against how I meditated, I think. Uh-huh. You know, the, uh, it, uh, the unskillful ways that I tried to get the mind to shut up seemed to create more thought waves and also damage my fragile self-image uh, because I couldn't succeed in penetration. Uh, and I gradually... Uh, you know, not letting the mind have authority over me meant I, I was more, had a better relationship, more a more relationship with the mind, uh, understanding how it operated, wh- where it could be nudged, where I should pay attention to what it wants. Uh, so part of uh, not letting the mind having too much authority is is listening well to it and creating more of a rapport so that we're all on the same page about what this life is about. And it's taken mm. a few decades to, to get a little more intelligent approach towards working with the mind. And uh, it, still, it still can do things that I don't really think are supportive of my spiritual life. I actually don't worry too much about that anymore. If I go along with it, it means... Uh, it has enough momentum that I have to accept that that's what, that's what I, I want now. I, I'm siding with that desire of the mind. 
and I'm fulfilling it. So is yeah. that like a conscious choice? Um, <laughs> <That's a good laughs> <question>. <laughs> okay, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's become more conscious that, uh, you know, okay, here we go. <laughs> we're going on this road now. You recognize it, right? We're, we're conscious of what we're doing now, right? <laughs> and, and I say, yeah, I'm conscious of it. Uh, I had a strong enough momentum that I'm going with it, yeah. So I don't know, was any of that useful for, for yeah. you or for yeah. someone trying to figure out how much authority to give the mind? Yeah, I think so. But I guess um, to understand when you first start out, you said, okay, so you didn't have the kind of resistance that many people when they start a practice has to being regular in like saying, okay, every day I'm going to do my Hatha X number of minutes. And then I'm going to meditate for such and such. And I'm doing it X number of days a week and X number of times a day. You didn't have that resistance in the beginning but you said there were other things that you feel like your mind resisted. It just didn't resist in that particular area. Yeah. And it not only didn't resist, it became fanatical about the disciplines in a way that wasn't really health. Maybe in the beginning it was useful to be that rigid. But after some time, you know, uh, if I saw every person who came up to me as an as a obstacle to my practice. I, you know, why they take up my time? Uh, uh, or I didn't even have any spirit of, of service. Everything was about the regularity of my practice. So not only did I not resist it, I clung to it Whoa. as if it was everything. So do you have any idea like, like why that happened or what led to that? Or was that just your natural inclination being introverted or I don't know? That's a good question. I think some of it if I were going to give a psychological answer, was my own insecurity about my sincerity. So the way I could prove my sincerity is if, if, if I did more spiritual practice than anybody else. I mean, that's how I assessed myself, by comparing myself with others. So you mean like your self-worth? That Was it like your basic self-worth, your spiritual self-worth, you as a spiritual seeker, you as a person? The whole thing. Wow. I don't know if I could divide that up. Uh -huh. uh, um, yeah. How, how I regarded myself was always in comparison to others. I didn't have any self-mechanisms to assess myself. So I think a part of it was just making sure I did more than anyone else. So that means I must be sincere. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in a, in a sense, it served you well in that it did get you into a nice, regular, steady practice. Uh, and then how did, how did your relationship with that evolve over time? And what were the other areas, maybe, if you could share that you, did you ever think, well, I have so much discipline there, could I apply it to this, but that didn't work? And did you come up with strategies? Yeah. yeah before I go into that, I, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, before I became uh, what we call a spiritual seeker and a swami, I was a competitive swimmer. Oh, wow. I didn't have that much natural ability. Like my brother, my younger brother was really, had natural ability. It was a little hard to have a younger brother who was so naturally good. I'd be working like crazy. He would, he's a lazy fellow, but he would he would be winning events. So I worked out before school 
after school, after dinner. I was, oh. I worked really hard. That was my thing, competitive swimming. Ah. Uh, and so when I saw the schedule when I be, uh, at the IYI, I said, wow, that's, that fits into my mentality. Okay. So already I was, I was like this fanatic about, I think, I think some sense of not feeling I had natural ability made me feel, I just have to work harder than most people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then what about in other areas? Did that extend or do you think it's like, how do you, how do you see that? I mean, in the beginning, I was crazy about food. I, enjoy, I love food so much. In those days, I, it was like my only thing I could hold on to. But you are so skinny. That is so frustrating. <laughs> so I was so rigid about food. Oh. <laughs> one meal a day and one bowl. But why did you do that? Was it to counter your obsessiveness, if I could say, with, with food, or your preoccupation with food, or what was it? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> I, I had to rein it in. So I, I, created, I had this huge bowl. People couldn't believe the skinny kid. <laughs> I got this huge bowl and fill it to the brim because I could have one bowl once a day. That was it. Whoa. And, and that's how I... I I dealt with my love of that sensual enjoyment. And I was so happy when I read that Sri Ramakrishna, he used to love his food. He, oh. used, to, he, used, to, he used to gobble it up. Like, uh, and, uh, and one day one of his disciples said, sir, you know, it's a little bit odd when people watch you eating food. You seem to eat it with such relish and gusto. You know, you're an enlightened person. He says, yeah, that's the one thing I cling on to. Uh, when you see me not interested in food, know that I won't be here much longer. And that's what happened. One day, he kids, they served him his meal. He pushed it aside. He left the body a few days after that. Wow. <laughs> so I'm not putting myself in that place. But I, I, that's the thing I'm holding on to. My love of food is the thing that, I don't know. I, I can see it. I can, you know, and I fast one day a week also. So that means six meals a week. Oh gosh! And, and I really, I really enjoy those <laughs> six meals. I, I, like Ramakrishna, I relish them so much. I could see that maybe that one day dependency on that enjoyment could become more neutral. But it's amazing how you decided that you were going to reel it in, and you you came up with a strategy. And as far as I know you still stick to that. So that's how many years of that, sir? When did I start one meal a day? Pretty quickly. You know, uh, Gurudev said something in my early days, maybe 1970, 71. Gurudev said, one meal a day a yogi, two meals a day a bogey, someone who lives for sensual enjoyment, three meals a day a rogi, someone who's, who's sick, a sick person, eats three meals a day. So I said, all right, the guru said it. Uh, that's all I need to hear. I'm a one meal a day person. That must have been, yeah, in my early day, or first few years. So we're talking about close to 50 years. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And do you go through a thing? I mean, I don't want to get too, I could go on and on about food. If you have like what you would might categorize a less than satisfying meal, is that like a thing or do you just kind of move on from that? <laughs> no, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i think i i depend on being satisfied with that <laughs> so 
you know, I needed, I need the right amount. I like olive oil. I need things that make it satisfying <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, I guess if you're going to have some, it's not the worst thing in the world, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and any other areas? I mean, do you feel like the discipline that you've had with the sadhana has sort of branched out to other things? You know, has it sort of kind of extended into other areas of your life? Or how would you see, because you did mention there's some places where your mind does lead the way, right? Yeah. Is it a practice of yours to try to narrow that or reel it in in some ways? Or you, you also, you said something about like you have maybe a less contentious relationship with your mind these days. And, and how did you kind of come to that, if that's so? I think I'm going to answer first about this really gain issue. The thought that came to mind is uh, um, I had a friend, a good friend, who I think because the misinformation turned on me and, and later she apologized. And we were, it was kind of pretty hurtful for me because we were close and to have such a dramatic turn. But we were working on, on getting close again and then uh, recently she did something that made me feel that we were moving apart. My natural inclination is to withdraw, to kind of write the person off. There she goes again. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to get caught in her stuff. Yeah. But I, I, I said, no, no, we don't do that anymore. This is someone who is a good friend. So yesterday I reached out an email. I said, you know, we worked through so much stuff. I hate to see us backtrack, you know. You know, I can see myself, you know, maybe withdrawing. But I know we both care so much about the IYI, you know. Uh, we're both doing our best. Uh, I, I'd rather see if we want to talk it out rather than move into separate camps. And just this morning, I got, I got an email from her saying, I'm so grateful you wrote to me. Let's, let's, let's talk, you know. So I just see that there is a strong impulse for me to pull away and to close my heart to someone. And it does take a little, a bit of discipline on my part. I, I can feel the, I think what Lincoln called the better angels of my nature, trying to poke through this closed, this contracting heart. Uh, and I try, and I tune into that. And I tune into Swami Satsananda's Gurudev's words also. Uh, and uh, it does, that's the, just a little nudge I need to overcome some deep-seated patterns of mine to when I feel hurt to shut down instead of reach out. Nice. So I think that the discipline relates to me working with some deep-seated, some scars in that way also. And, you know, I do see that, I think that discipline can make me a little bit impatient if I see, like if I'm in a meeting and the meeting's all over the place, is, you know, what's the agenda? You know, what are we talking about? Can we, yeah. can we stop to one topic? Uh, I think my disciplined mind has less patience for that. And I'm learning to express that in the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what are we trying to decide now, folks? Uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I see, you know, uh, I'm more aware of, of, of my mind going in tangents. And so I see in other people's minds when they go in tangents and say, you know, what, you know, I used to love how Gurdjieff would, talk on a topic he'd veer away i forget where we started he'd come right back to exactly where where he started you know yeah. and and that's what i think i've gained some of that skill of coming back 
after the natural tendency of the mind to go off in all different directions. And I do think that the discipline is me. Uh, I'm kind of an organized person. I like things orderly. If you go to my room, you'll see it's kind of a Zen-like room. It's not necessarily that clean. I mean, I'm not the greatest cleaner, but I like <laughs> I'm orderly, you know. So yeah. uh, that type of discipline, I think, has may help me to be a very orderly type person. So everything's in its place. Every, right. Everything have a place. And if it gets out of place, you like to put it back into place? It should go back into place. I don't even want to get out of place. It should, has a place. Why is it getting out of place? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're also, you're a monk and you have like probably three things to your name. <laughs> <laughs> no, but after 50 years, you know, you still start the people give you stuff. They say, oh, oh you know, I wanted to buy you these 10 undershirts. You know, I, <laughs> I, already have, I already have other people bought me 20 undershirts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I accumulate stuff uh, and I have to, I have to, be like a dispatcher, keep moving it on to other, other places. <laughs> oh. but, uh, but your last question, what, what was it again? I, I deflected it. Um, so how has the discipline sort of morphed maybe into other areas of your life maybe, or the things that you, you, you said that sometimes there are ways that your mind just sort of leads and you let it. In certain areas you don't, you feel like you have that reeled in, but in some areas you don't. Yeah, I don't want to pretend to be a perfect human being, uh, let alone a perfect spiritual being. So it depends, you know, I don't know. There are things that I just don't want to rein in yet. Like I like watching movies. So on Sunday, I'll watch two movies. Oh boy, let's all just get really like freaked out about that. Swami Ashokananda watches two movies and that's it for the week uh those that's the only time i watch movies oh my gosh oh no <laughs> yeah that's not something i feel i need to you know it would be nice for me to spend more I, in my old days my original time you know my early days i would spend some days in sadhana now but you're doing sadhana you <laughs> <laughs> let me get this straight hold on a minute you live in an ashram you meditate three times a day. You're a world-class Hatha yogi. You eat one freaking meal a day. And on Sunday, you watch a movie or two. Okay, what have I missed here about... <laughs> I mean, come on. You have so much discipline. At least on Sunday, I still do my three meditations. I still do my <laughs> yeah, you don't take the day off, so that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should have said that. It's not like, oh, yeah, I meditate three times a day, Monday through Friday. No, 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 seven days, yeah. But, you know, one thing is that I, I have, the discipline now that I have is that if need be, I will miss a meditation. Not because it's a discipline for me to miss it. It's, it, takes, it takes an act of will for me to break that schedule. But I see, I see that life is saying, buddy, this person or this job or this service is your meditation now. Wow. And that's it's, something yeah, you couldn't do before. I couldn't you- do that before. Wow. And now, and now uh, I don't, there's no inclination in my mind to misuse that. It is a little hard on me to, I'll try to, if at all possible, try to still get the third meditation in. Wow. But, 
But uh, I also make sleep a priority, try to get to sleep by turn off my light by 1030. So then I have to decide, am I going to stay up late and meditate or am I going to stick to my sleep schedule, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so, oh, it's amazing. You know, you, you also said something that I found interesting about like your relationship to your, you know, again, to your mind. And you said that you like to think. And I know, like, I like to think also, which is a problem in meditation, because I noticed that when I first sit, the natural arising is, oh, great, time to plan this. And don't forget that. Oh, yeah, you need to make a note of that. Now, what was I going to do about that? It's just like I'm planning the day, I'm planning the next project. Oh, wait, an idea. Oh, that would be good in that project. So when you're someone who does really like to think, because, you know, I guess it's one thing if you don't like to think and you're just like, hey, you know, I know there are some people like, I have heard longtime meditators say, I'm just not interested in thinking at all anymore. Where do you land on that continuum of thinking, not thinking? I like to think. I like to think and I like to know that I can stop thinking when I choose. And I'm not quite, I'm not there yet. I'm getting a little better at it. Uh, I think thought, it can be very helpful. It can be used in, in, in the service of the divine and very useful to people. And if it, if it, you know, overwhelms the being, then it's really a problem. So I think I can think better if I, if I can know that I can keep, I can turn it off when I want. Nice. I think, I think the quality of the thought is better if then, if it just keeps going, going, going. Mm-hmm. Okay. So thoughts within some kind of boundaries. So it's not just endless chatter. Yeah. But I, I tend to not believe a thought at face value. That's I, I, I recognize it is coming from is that the, the impulse is being filtered through my conditioning. So I recognize that the thought is not something neutral. So I think it needs, uh, it needs someone to assess it. Someone who, who I need an adult in the room yeah. to decide, uh, is that something I, I won't repress anything, but uh, is that something I should nurture or should I just not feed it? Oh, I think that's so amazing. It's like, um, I heard, I think it was Ianla Van Zant. One time mm-hmm. I interviewed her for Integral Yoga Magazine and she was saying something like, you know, with some of her clients, it's like, it's not safe to leave them alone in their minds, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. It's like, there's no adult in the room. It's like leaving <laughs> a child unattended, you yeah. know, in, yeah. in a dangerous zone. Yeah. So I respect the mind. I don't want to make it feel that I want to disregard it, but I, I do feel that it, it needs to be objectively look at any thought that comes up. I won't take it as, I mean, I, the problem is I tend to, you know, identify with my mind. So there's a strong pull to think that whatever I'm thinking is reality. So I, I have developed some capacity to recognize that, no, no, that's not reality. That's your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that because there's there is a teaching there's a teaching in Buddhism uh, that I recently learned, and it's something called real but not true. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so it's like you could be having some thought, some experience, and you know, 
it could be the tendency of your spiritual seeker to say, well, that's, you know, yeah, I could see how you could feel that way, but you know, you really shouldn't. So it's a more sort of validating and, you know, compassionate way to work with your mind to where you can say, well, I'm really thinking this or, and maybe it could be true, but I, I want to check it out. Or I'm feeling this way rather than spiritual bypassing or, you know, like invalidating how you feel to realize what I'm feeling, I'm feeling, and that makes it real, but it's not necessarily true. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, it's not maybe the real, you know, story. So, yeah, I, I really love that. And I was in this program this weekend with uh, Mark Epstein, who is a uh, psychiatrist and a Buddhist practitioner. And he's really, yeah. yeah, he's really, he's written a lot. He's interested in the intersection of psychology and spirituality. And he has one of his books, the title is Thoughts Without a Thinker. Mm. I thought that was really interesting. I, I heard somebody tell this story. I don't know if you ever heard it. It's it's like a metaphor. It's not really a story. It's more a metaphor of the lion and the dog. Like if you're out in the wild with your dog and well, let's say it's like a jungly area or something. So there's also lions around. Okay. So you pick up a, but you know, you're playing with the dog and you pick up a stick or a stone, you throw it in the dog's direction. The dog, well, what will it do? It's going to chase the stick, right? Don't run after it. Now, a lion comes by, you throw the same sticker stone at a lion. What does it do? It chases you. Yeah. So in, in spiritual life, it's like the idea is don't chase the thought, look to the source of the thought. I love that. Yeah. And it's it's when we look at the source, like what do we find? We find there's a thinker. And the source of the thinker, you know, most people would think, well, that, you know, if you got to that point where you could, you know, most people are just at the effect of their thoughts, right? There's not very much awareness. It's just like, just coming through, data coming through all the time, pulling you here and there. But then if you're at least aware enough to say, oh, there's someone thinking these thoughts, but now take it one more step. Wait, what's the source of the thinker, right? And that's like, pure awareness so in thinking about this in terms of meditation like both vipassana jnana yoga traditions thoughts which i find fascinating because i really did think when i first started meditating i thought the idea get rid of the thoughts but you know like in these traditions thoughts are used as support to lead us toward the thinker and then beyond so we can utilize a thought to ask, so who's having this thought? Or like, you know, Sri Ramana Maharshi said, you know, ask, you know, who's having this thought? Who am I? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he said, the more you focus on that question, eventually what happens is the thinker who's like so focused on awareness itself becomes absorbed by the awareness. So that I, the ego, it just becomes absorbed by that. And in that moment, that's when total awakening dawns. So beautifully expressed, Prim, yeah. Oh, that to me is, this is, you know, that's awakening. Oh, this unchanging, continual recognition 
of ourselves, not as body mind, right? But as pure awareness. Now, how do you get there? Is it just, is it, you know, just, you know, Sri Ramana, I, I was reading his books recently and he's like, no, all you have to do is sit down and just keep asking that question. That's the practice, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just, that's the practice. And then I'm like, okay, well, that seems simple enough. But nothing happens <laughs> during that it's practice. Very difficult, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just like over time, the mind, you know, it reaches this point of where you're awareness expands so much and your identification of the body mind you know begins to release its hold like you were talking about the loosening of the identification of swami ashokananda mm -hmm. right and that it does just that i've heard it described as like awareness just kind of it just sucks the ego out. And it's like, almost like, it's not like the ego is gone because you need an ego to function. And all of these great, you know, all of these great yanis, you know, Swami Satchitananda, Sri Ramana, Nisargadatta Maharaj, they all had personalities. They were people, they did things. But it's that, that I-ness, that little I-ness mm. seems to dissolve into pure awareness, is absorbed by pure awareness. So thoughts on that, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this, I think today, just today, that, that when we realize that there is only one thing, I don't know how to put it, that's conscious, everything else is, is, is reflecting that one consciousness uh, and probably distorting it in some way. So we are going to have an ego but I know that the ego is not really conscious. It, it, it's a conscious behind that. That's the only thing that's conscious. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally it's, makes it's sense. It's been a, a, an awakening thought for me that there's only one thing here. There's only one thing that's conscious. And that's my essence. Mm -hmm. Everything else is... Yeah, everything else is an object. It's just... An object. It's <laughs> right, right. That's a good yeah. word. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I heard someone recently say, well, I know I'm not the mind, but it sure feels like that. <laughs> I know. Do you think, have you kind of come to, I mean, you've got years of meditation in that is just, you know, it's a long process. Well, I guess it depends also. I mean, you could say like, you know, we were talking a little bit about Sri Ramana. He had this, you know, seemed like instant awakening. So maybe it depends on your samskaras your karma the vasanas that all determine how cloudy you know how thick the veils are maybe and so it's a gradual does do you think like meditation is a gradual cleaning of you know that chitta vritti it's a cleaning and thinning of the veils it feels that way to me i know the yanis don't like this idea about gradual awakening yeah uh, and they don't even believe in time, really. Well, it's true in a sense. I mean, you know, it is time, space, relative, in, yeah, yeah. in true. But yeah. uh, my, what's real for me, it may not be true, but it's, what's real for me is that, yeah, it feels like I'm on this gradual path. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the story now, but you know the story about the one who, see how many leaves on that tree? Yeah. That's how many lives you have, you know, and he's happy. Okay. At least I know there's at some point uh, there's going to be enlightenment. 
So I, I've come to that truly that I'm going to enjoy the, the path. You're going to enjoy the journey? I'm going to enjoy the journey. I think that's one way to kind of stick it to Maya is to say, so I'm going to be happy even in, even in this Maya realm. <laughs> <laughs> and Maya, I think, with a big frown on her face. <laughs> I mean, I was miserable in Maya for a long enough time. Uh, and now, and sometimes I'm a little miserable, but I don't, I don't want to buy into the fact, thinking that I'm miserable. I think, I, what I, you know, I'm saying it in a, in a, in a light way, but <clears throat> I think if you don't let the circumstances of life pulling down yeah then it is it is a, a path to lifting yourself above the ups and downs of the swinging life positive negative life mm-hmm. you know you're saying that you more go with the flow now that you're doing your part do you feel like you're doing your part you're doing your sadhana you're on this spiritual path and when that awakening that full awakening is going to happen it's going to just happen you don't have to stress worry feel upset distressed about it you're just gonna do what you do follow the teachings the best of your ability and let the rest happen is that kind of that's kind of where i'm at you know i'm, I'm working this book in the bhagavad gita and today i was working on the um the second chapter of the 40th verse and in it uh Krishna says to Arjuna, even a little bit of practice will ha- will, will, it goes into your, your bank account, your spiritual bank account. If nothing is lost. I like that he said, even a little practice. And, and you know, the ego likes to do very uh, ostentatious, dramatic austerities. Uh, the ego feeds on that. But just to, do, to live a pretty normal life, stay steady in your practice, be sincere, not to do anything crazy. So I do feel that way, that I'm just going to, Go about my life and trust my guru and enjoy each day as best I can. That is so beautiful. <laughs> I think that's like the perfect, perfect conclusion for this episode. <laughs> okay. Great advice. I'm going to take that to heart. <laughs> Thank you, Pramanjali. So great to talk to you. You too. Om Shanti. Om Shanti. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to integralyoga.org. 